Great. Uh, so to answer the first part of the question that you mentioned, um, the deal process for us looks fairly standard for VC, especially for early stage VCs. So the first touch point that we have is always with the pitch deck. That's, um, you know, if we get any sort of inbounds or if we have someone within our network um, wanting to, you know, explore a potential path to investment, we ask them to submit uh, a pitch deck or say a one pager that just summarizes the business. This is a great way for us to pre-screen everything. So we get to see their materials, how they sort of craft their story about their their company and just get a look at some of the different metrics that they're they're working with, what market they're within um, and what their story looks like so far. And so for us, you know, there's a lot of companies that uh, we can uh, choose to pass on right then and there. We don't have to spend the time meeting them. Uh, for the ones that do sort of pass that first bar, uh, we always introduce uh, a first meeting to them, which is very casual. We want to just establish a good first uh, relationship with uh, the founder, we want to get to know them a little bit more. So usually the questions are tailored to understanding what their background and past experiences are, you know, what initially led them to start their company and maybe some details around how the progress is going. We really just want to extract as much information about the founders themselves and see what they're thinking um, about the the initial sort of trajectory of their company. We'll take the deck, um, we'll take the materials that they send afterwards. We usually see if we can capture, say, the data room at the very beginning, if we're interested in continuing. Um, then there's a review period with the partners. We have one partners meeting a week that goes for about an hour where we essentially just go over a quick summary of each company. Here's the name of the company. Here are the founders. This is what industry it's in. And here's a quick summary along with a couple of key points as to why I think it's worth bringing it up to them. Uh, we'll have that initial discussion period. We'll see if they're interested or not. If they're not, we just send them an email saying, hey, it's not the right time. We're looking to pass. Uh, if so, then I will usually schedule uh, another meeting within the same week or the week after just to go through a bunch of details. So um, doing some diligence on my end, uh, market research, trying to understand the competitive landscape, asking a lot of questions about that. And then, you know, forwarding any questions that maybe came up during the partners meeting. Assuming that goes well, then we try to schedule a group meeting with myself, the partners, and then their founding team, just to get everybody established and connected together. We always want that touch point where at least, you know, uh, if, we're, if we're going to make an investment, we want everybody to be well acquainted. So uh, that's the third touch point. And we usually spend a couple of days uh, deliberating after that. And again, if everything is is all good, ready to go, then we can uh, uh, quickly just say, hey, we're looking to invest. Here's um, a, a term sheet. And then we get into the negotiations of the term sheet. So, and then that process looks, it could be anywhere between three to four weeks. We try to keep it within sort of a month timeline. We know that a lot of companies are, wanting to make sure that they can close their raise uh, quickly. They'd rather be building than fundraising. Fundraising is an essential part of, of growth in uh, a lot of respects. So uh, we want to just be able to minimize the timeline and getting a decision to them. So Casey, uh, also, should you tell us about LOI uh, Ventures? So, and what is the short, what does it mean, the LOI? And uh, which kinds of companies do you invest and uh, also tell, tell us how did you end up being an investor in this fund? For sure. 
Yeah, so LOI Venture was started in 2021. LOI comes from League of Innovators, which is our, I would call it a sister company. It's our accelerator that's been running for a little bit longer than we have. And uh, it was essentially when it was formed, my uh, two partners, uh, Ryan Holmes, the founder of Hootsuite, Manny Pata, he's a serial entrepreneur in Vancouver, they combined their charities together um, to essentially accelerate the uh, ability for, or I, I, I guess give access to uh, young entrepreneurs throughout Canada, at least initially, um, resources, uh, materials, mentorship to help build and grow their startup. So we, the fund came about a few years after the fact when they started realizing that some of the companies that were going through this program were scaling quite well. You know, one of the success stories that we always come back to is uh, Smart Suites uh, by uh, Tara Bosch, the founder. She was one of the first people in the program, scaled a massive CPG company in the uh, uh, healthy snack space to now where they're appearing in most convenience stores, uh, department stores, grocery stores. Um, so the the enterprise value there is is quite incredible. And so we wanted to, of course, capture that and, and be a part of the investment journey as well. And the nice thing about that is any of the return that comes back to us as part of the carried interest that we would receive, a uh, part of that goes to the accelerator again. We want to continue to fuel innovation and hopefully see that cycle continue and, and grow over time as well. So um, that's, that's a little bit about the fund. Uh, how I got involved was through an initial connection through this um, social platform called Lunch Club. I had met someone in Los Angeles, well-connected person. He was doing a lot of work uh, on the Pacific Coast in connecting people. He was also very active in bringing uh, a lot of Filipino investors into Silicon Valley, so introducing them to a variety of different startups and investors there. So he introduced me to a friend of his who was working in Vancouver. And at the time, I was with uh, another fund uh, on a contract. And uh, the friend that he introduced me to was also in some similar situation where he was based in Canada, but working remotely for a US fund. So me and him connected really well. He introduced me, one of the first people he introduced me to was another person in Vancouver. Um, his name is Tim. And he was the previous senior analyst at LOI. He was working there part-time. And he, within that same week of me meeting him, he ended up taking off to join uh, a company out in Edmonton as a president. So he could no longer be in that senior analyst role. So that left it vacant. And I spoke with him. I told him, hey, I have capacity. I'm interested in this. I find this fund very interesting. It would give me a lot of exposure, of course, to uh, Canada and, and be able to build my network here as well, because most of the people I've met before were, were in the U.S., and um, the, the process went really easy. He introduced me to both the partners. I had separate conversations with them, came back to the one partner within, say, I believe it was a week and a half, and they offered me the position as a, as a part-time analyst. So that, uh, that, that went extremely well. It's not a typical uh, interview process. So I've been with them since March. Uh, I'm working on um, now kind of consolidating my efforts and going full-time with them. And the... Again, the experience has been incredible. The access to amazingly talented people, both internal to both of our companies and then in the founders and investors that we deal with is, is nothing short of amazing. So it's it's a, a real, um, I, I can't take this for granted. It's a real pleasure to be a part of this organization.
So which sectors are you most excited about investing right now? Absolutely. We so we uh, our our fund mandate is that we're a sector agnostic fund. So anything is essentially fair game. We do have a bit of hesitation towards some verticals uh, that maybe are just a little bit more distant to what um, our collective expertise is. So we've been a little bit more uh, reluctant to say invest in healthcare or life sciences. That's the one that we usually get a lot of pushback in. But in terms of industries that we're excited about, we've really looked into the CPG uh, space, for example, we have a couple portfolio companies that are in that vertical that have done really well and that are one of them, I believe, is raising currently. Um, we've invested in a franchise company, um, a mobile uh, mobile oil changes, tire rotation, other services for cars and fleets. Um, that's not usually a conventional VC bet. VCs are not very... Uh, warm, I guess, to investing in, say, franchises. So, but this one is performing exceptionally well. Um, uh, so we, we really like the founders with uh, with that one. Um, and then we go up and down the list of um, ed tech, for example. We've made uh, a couple of, uh, we're, we're in diligence with a couple of companies right now. We just did invest in one out in Calgary called Monarch. It's a leadership development for emerging and middle managers. Um, so yeah, we, we are very all encompassing. We are essentially, you know, we, we, we try to you know, rapidly learn any sort of industry very quickly, arrive at some sort of conclusion about the state of the market today, what that company is doing tomorrow. And, you know, does it actually fit in as something that's novel or disruptive or setting a new standard? And if we can determine that, then usually we'll, we'll try to make a deal. How do you source interesting investment opportunities? Absolutely. So we have the unique advantage of having our accelerator do much of the work for us. So we're heavily split or I, I guess heavily concentrated towards making investments that come out of the accelerator. So we have cohorts that span at least back into 2017, if not earlier, that we can tap into of plenty of startup founders that are looking for uh, pre-seed or seed dollars. So they essentially are already within our network. It's just up to us to make sure that we can check in with the accelerator team monthly just to see, hey, are they aware of anyone that's raising? Do they vouch or or uh, do they uh, find you know a particular company interesting and can we talk to them? So we don't have to do uh, as much sourcing as most other early stage funds. Uh, we, we have a, a really good pipeline of companies already. But then, of course, you know, we do have a, a small sort of sliver uh, within our mandate to invest in external uh, opportunities as well. So anything out in the market, it doesn't have to fit the uh, profile of what we would look for in the accelerator. Uh, Monarch, for example, the, one of the last companies we invested in was not a part of the accelerator. I met them through uh, an, a networking dinner. So we 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 do try to at least have uh, a bit of a look into finding companies anywhere else and that could come from uh, warm leads so people that we're familiar with i have a pretty big investor network so i tend to talk to a lot of other funds especially emerging funds or ones that invest in early stage companies as well for deal sharing opportunities then looking through some basic data platforms you know crunchbase pitchbook what they kind of give you and uh, say CV Insights, for example, those are all really good places to, again, if there's a particular vertical that we're after, so AI is really hot right now with VCs, 
we're also trying to make our mark within that industry because we believe that there are um, certain pockets of that industry that that lend to um, very long-term successful companies. We want to make sure that we can capture those or at least have the conversations with founders there just to understand the environment. Mm -hmm. What are the, some red flags you watch out uh, for during your evolutions, meetings with founders? Mm -hmm. So our fund is very founder focused. That's one of the main criteria that we use to evaluate uh, any early stage companies. So we're a bit more of a higher volume uh, investor. So we will make more investments throughout the year. We're not as say data driven in the sense that we won't create any sort of complex models to support um, uh, I, I guess the, the narrative of a company. So uh, a lot of the companies that we look at are pre-revenue or just starting out. So we think that that sometimes um, would detract from being able to close on a decision quickly or support founders. So um, being founder first, uh, one of the red flags that we will identify or that we've seen is a lack of transparency and Within the meetings, we, you know, in our in our sort of question and, and conversation period, there are certain materials or mentions of things that the founders just don't disclose and we have to go hunting for them. So, for example, uh, it could be within a deck or within a conversation, not understanding who their competitors are, right? If they don't mention that in the deck or if they're maybe not mentioning some key players that might be a little bit more directly competing with them than what they're suggesting. That gives us an indication that they're trying to paint a picture without, you know, disclosing the whole truth. And I understand that you want to win, you want to win over an investor, right? But you have to understand too, that we're going to make sure that we do our proper checks to understand the industry. So if you haven't identified your direct competitor or someone who's very close to you and is doing something comparable, then that's a bit of a red flag going forward because it either suggests that you're not willing to be completely honest and transparent with us, or you don't know your market well enough. So that's, that's one of the biggest red flags, I would say. Um, another is we try to do a lot of work on understanding the team dynamics. So each individual, of course, we want to assert that they have the proper skills, their past experience is somehow relevant to what their company is doing today. But if we can tell that there's a bit of a disjoint between how the founders can work together. So say you have an all technical team that's never once uh, built a company before or never once um, been in a position where they've been part of uh, sales or business development or um, even operations, right? If, if it's a purely technical team, then we almost wonder, you know, you can build a very novel product and you can probably do it a little bit quicker than, than others can. But can we get confident in your ability to actually sell this or identify your customers or be able to scale and navigate the problems of a growing company, right? Because there's a lot more to it than just building a product, right? You need to make sure that you have a team to support you um, as you grow. And then you need to make sure that this is validated within the market and you have uh, the proper measures to determine uh, product market fit. Uh, you have, say, certain pockets within the market that are very receptive uh, to this that could be um, you know, first movers or, or saying, I guess, first adopters um, to your product or service. So if if, um, it, if the team dynamics, if we can't assert that those would lend to a quickly growing but stable company where there's sort of a complementary fit between founders, that's also a bit of a red flag too. 
same, same, and same goes with, you know, the opposite as well. So I mentioned, you know, an all technical team uh, that could also be said for say an all say financial team, right? If you have a couple of people with a finance only background trying to sell software, um, you would hope that they would have to find somebody to also be on the leadership team that could lead up the technical development as well. So. Um, and what are the top things founders should focus on when pitching to VCs or any tips for entrepreneurs mm. how to get in front of the investors? Absolutely. I guess to get in front of the investors, I learned this as well on the other side of the table in being able to break into VC. It's about volume. It's about one, can you identify the audience that would be most receptive to what you're building, which is why I've always been a proponent of strategic capital. I think it's much better to find investors, even if they're, say, a smaller fund or angels that have had experience in the industry that you're operating in. If you can find them, pitch to them, get your feedback loop from them, it's it's much better than going to a variety of, you know, say, generalist investors that maybe don't have the industry expertise that you do. And that can't necessarily comment or arrive at a, a preferable conclusion or maybe a more accurate conclusion about your company. So that that would be the 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 one thing that I would suggest just in, in that process is make sure that if you can really target uh, a particular segment of investors that, again, would highly identify or at least have a better opinion of what you're building and can give you candid feedback, that's a great first step. And then go after that, you know, in spades go and, and seek out the volume there, right? There's there's a lot of investment firms out there. Um, I'm just, I'm amazed even at Canada um, having such a big investment environment in terms of how many funds there are. You know, I'm constantly discovering new funds in, in different provinces that I've never seen before. Uh, usually anywhere between 10 to 25 million, these are emerging funds. Uh, one that we actually dealt with is, is uh, very, very interesting. It's called Storytime Capital. Um, they're a, a full team of operators that started their first fund that are really executing on the human capital leadership space, future of work. They know their market and most of their LPs from what I uh, understand are also the former founders as well. So they, they've lived that life and the people that have kind of put this fund together understand the journey of a founder, right? It's not coming from big institutions um, that are, say, once removed from the, the founder journey. Like, these are people that are directly involved there. So if a founder can go after as many of those types of funds as possible, get the feedback, get some of those initial meetings, see if there's interest, you know, validate the, the potential for the startup, I think that's a great first approach. And then when it comes down to pitching, um, and I've seen this because I work on the side for a company called Deco, which does end-to-end -end pitch deck design services. The best thing that you can do is make sure that your story is absolutely tight. You know yourself, you know the company, you know why you're building it, and it, it flows together nicely, right? There's a lot of people that put information on slides and then pitch that and it's all over the place. We want to see that you can summarize what your company does, delve into, say, the macro environment, show exactly why the problem exists introduce your company as the reason that people, um, you know, can maybe alleviate that problem and then go into some of the dynamics about why 
one, how you'll work and how you'll get customers, how the market is supportive of this, um, you know, what sort of performance you've had so far that would allow people to get interested in the investment. And then, of course, ending with, hey, you know, this is our team. This is what we do. This is why we're applicable here. And this is our ask, you know, um, this is exactly what we're going to use our funds for. This is the type of runway that we're looking for. If you can craft a story where that all sort of aligns and makes sense, the one slide flows into the next, you appear obviously much more confident. And then people are a little bit more assured that you know what you're talking about and you are the person to do this. Because I, I, I tell you, there's there's way too many companies that they have an idea, they have the, the workings of the company right now, they can't sell it worth anything and they turn people away when they pitch because of how disjointed and disorganized it is. So know yourself, know your story, be able to translate that when you're speaking to people. And of course, have your, your pitch deck or any sort of visual materials ready to support that. How many deals uh, would you say you look in a, um, at a, in a given month or a quarter? That's a good question. I think within a given month, I would say anywhere close to 40 or 50. Um, again, we're a more high volume uh, fund. So we have a lot of people within our accelerator that uh, get introduced to us or I reach out to them um, either that are currently in the cohort this year. Right now we have our fall cohort in place or they could be any alumni company as well from the years prior. And, and so we try to regularly cycle through those companies. Of course, I do a little bit of, uh, and I mean, the accelerator does pretty much all the work on this, but I try to see if I can find other people, you know, at conferences, certain gatherings or meetups where I can introduce them to the accelerator as well that, you know, I think would be a good fit for the program and that we could potentially invest into. Um, so that adds to it a little bit, but I would say within, yeah, within a given month, anywhere between 40 to 50. Mm -hmm. And then of course the funnel is, is very, it's still very narrow, even with a higher volume fund. I mean, we'll probably do anywhere between 20 to 25 investments. And it's probably conservative. I'd imagine we do more, um, but 20 to 25 investments a year. And so, um, and then that's just what we've done so far. Like we have uh, within, we've actually had a couple of spells where there have been say a quarter or two where we haven't invested just because we wanted to, again, say reassess what, exactly we're looking for some of the criteria that we want to have so there have been you know one or two quarters where we didn't make an investment so we do want to say end load our our uh, fund towards the end so say next year the year after for example we'll probably look to ramp up our uh, check writing so yeah 20 to 25 i'd say for now but then it could be up to 30 or 40. Where do you spend most of your time during the due diligence financial teams uh, market research is it really, um, I mean, in early stage startups, uh, do you uh, search for, for example, planning business plans or expectations, spreadsheets? Yeah, the, 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 the first thing that we consider is the team. So understanding, again, um, can we find articles? Can we find information um, that just displays their background? Right. Uh, doing a quick check on LinkedIn, Twitter, other social media sites as well. Just to understand, hey, where have they been? Of course, we like to talk about that exact journey with them, you know, in our conversation too. seeing again what they're thinking about in terms of new hires, you know, what groups or associations or anything else that they're a part of that would allow them to get the right network and to be able to 
essentially sell maybe quicker or or be you know in the right circles to receive an investment from appropriate people as well and a good example of that so we had a, a company recently that we invested in that's in the uh, music and entertainment space and the two founders have worked together before they co-run a, a digital agency to support you know those exact people so anyone from music artists themselves to record labels to producers and now they're building a solution that would be directly targeting those exact customer profiles. And so they've had a long history of being able to network with some pretty prominent people throughout Canada and even the U.S. as well. So we think, you know, they have the advantage of a deep network. They understand how these people work and operate. They understand who they can sell to or who would be most receptive to what they're building now. And of course, you know, they've, they've identified a problem within that time that they believe is worth solving. So... You know, finding out something like that, seeing how in-depth that that sort of um, previous opportunity was like uh, is, is super important. So, yeah, anything we can do to, again, assess the founders is first and foremost part of our diligence. Then we would say cross off um, some basic things like understanding the market dynamics. So uh, from a top down and bottom up perspective, what does the size of the market look like? Can we make realistic assumptions about how many customers they can absorb in a given time frame and then extrapolate, you know, of course, maybe uh, some very quick and easy projections from there. Um, some trend analysis, just understanding where the markets are today, what gaps exist, um, where certain companies are headed, what say the rate of adoption is for a particular technology or service or maybe a different framework in, in you know, conducting and completing work as well. So that would be second. Uh, third is just really drilling down on the competitive environment. So understanding who are the other startups in this place that might compete directly with you and that are also trying to prime themselves to grow very quickly. Who are the incumbent players? Why will you beat them um, and not say get absorbed by them or have them build out something themselves that can directly compete as well? And then the longevity of that, you know, you might be competitive today, you might be a first mover, you might have something about you that's giving you an edge currently. How are you going to sustain that? What moat are you trying to build? Things change and people are able to develop uh, just as quickly, right? So the minute you think that you have a sustainable advantage, that, you know, that next month or that next year, it could be gone. And now you have to think about, okay, well, how do we continue to sustain that over time? How do we make sure that this isn't a startup where we need to keep funneling money in to engage in sort of a sales war with other people that are roughly around the same size and, and growth profile as we have. So that's the third thing. We do a lot of external validation calls on all that. So whatever industry, we usually have a few people that we can reach out to almost immediately that would give us some perspective as you know an industry expert, someone that's built and sold a company in that space. We love having people that uh, of course, understand their environments and have lived and breathed the, the successes and failures to just comment on what they think, just, I guess, straight up about uh, uh, what the company that we're looking at is proposing, what sort of feedback they would give on what they're doing well and not well, and whether or not it could be venture backable. Now, of course, we end up making our decisions ourselves too, but we really like to factor in the uh, the perspective of others, especially when it comes from a place where they've lived and breathed that problem before. Mm. Uh, do you write the rejection emails? What does a rejection email, I mean, 
from your funds uh, typically communicate and how do you, what is your advice for the uh, entrepreneurs who receives these kinds of rejection emails how should they uh, overcome uh, these tough uh, communication sure uh, rejection emails are extremely common i mean uh, when you look at the statistic of 90% of startups will fail that's our assumption leading into a lot of conversations of course so we're very familiar with writing them first of all the the way they work uh, at least for me what i like to do is if especially if, if if i've spent a lot of time with a founder you know had a couple of calls with them dive into the details of their company really try to unlock whether or not this is a good fit for us and you know unfortunately at the very end of it it's still a no from the partners or myself um we want to give as much candid feedback as we possibly can spell it out for them exactly what we're thinking why we decided to pass give them as much feedback as possible just to see what we're thinking of on the other side of things there's sometimes a period too where our thoughts maybe are uh, maybe we're misjudging the opportunity. Maybe we've assumed some things that are uh, maybe incorrect or wrong to assume. So that gives them an opportunity to, of course, come back to us saying, well, hey, you know, think of it this way. Or maybe you're, you're misunderstanding what we're trying to do or how we're trying to get a wedge into this market. So it's a really good opportunity for them, of course, to see what investors are thinking, seeing if our assumptions are correct. That's the biggest thing that I try to convey with people as well as usually within the end of the message that I still like what you're building. I still want to support you in any way possible. I acknowledge that investors are wrong all the time as well. We're not perfect by any means. And we, um, again, we don't live and breathe the, the, the company quite the way that, you know, these founders do. So it's hard, you know, to get um, a rejection from someone who isn't in the industry, who doesn't maybe see it completely. Right. That's just the nature of the game though. So, we want to make sure that the, the feedback is absolutely transparent as much as possible. I do spend a good amount of time uh, just crafting those lengthy emails, again, just to, to give a window into how we think. And then I just invite them to, one, stay in touch, happy to put you in touch with other people that might find it interesting or might be able to give you additional feedback. Uh, and then two, you know, if any of the story changes, right? If we like the founders and these are people that we could see ourselves working with, regardless of the opportunity, then say if, if or sorry, not I guess not regardless of the opportunity, but uh, if we can see a, a good relationship with them over time and we believe in them, then maybe the story for them changes. Maybe they adjust how their company operates. Maybe they pivot, try a new direction. We're always open to revisiting the conversation then um, because we don't ever want to close ourselves off and be a dead end for founders, you know? So if we can give them that assurance that, hey, we're, we're here to help, we're here to put you in touch with other people in our network that we trust and believe in as well. That could maybe either, you know, they might see something that we don't and they could be an investor for you. Or ultimately, you know, they could just be another source of advice and feedback. Whatever whatever the case may be, I think, you know, VCs, we, we try to make sure that we do a good job at, at um, ensuring that we're, yeah, like I said, not a dead end. And of course, that, that comes with plenty of, of mistakes on our end too. Like we're we're still growing and improving our, our the way that we offer that feedback and the time in which we do that. But it's it's one of those efforts that takes a bit of time and that requires a lot of additional effort just to make sure that we we get it right. So I mean, rejection and accepting is a little bit easier. 
but there are some startups maybe status. <laughs> I mean, how does a maybe status come to in your process mm -hmm. and what can move it to a yes? Yeah, that's a good question. So there have been plenty of times where I will go to my partners with something that I will share the advantages that I see and the disadvantages that I see. Here's how they could potentially exist in the market. Here's how they could potentially scale, but I'm not sold on it completely. They're not sold on it completely. And it just, it ends up being a bit of a, a, a stalemate, right? On, on whether or not we do anything with it. It's not something that we want to outright reject, but it's also not something that we're, say, comfortable right now in, in placing investment in. So for us, um, the, the maybes end up being where we would send them an email just saying, this is honestly what we think. We're not really sure about this. We don't want to confirm yes. We don't want to place uh, money into something that we're just unfamiliar with or that we don't completely understand um, or that we don't maybe have as high of conviction in. So we usually just frame it as, hey, maybe now's not the right time. We do want to stay in touch. We want to monitor your progress. If parts of the story change that look favorable, we'll stay in touch. We'll reach back out again. And those bits that are favorable uh, or and the companies that usually end up falling into this category are ones that we're interested in the business model. We're interested in the market that they're selling to. It's something new. It's something maybe a little bit unique, but they don't have much traction behind it yet. So we can't assert that there's any evidence of product market fit. We can't build out a case where if they absorb this many customers a year, this is how much revenue they can potentially earn over time if they grow at X percentage. There's a lot of things that are completely hypothetical at that point in time. So we want to just take a step back and say, we like what you're building. Give us a little bit more time to continue monitoring you and, and seeing how uh, this, this company is progressing. If the traction really impresses us, then that might be the selling factor in, in getting us on, um, on the side of wanting to invest in the future. We have a company right now that's like that. I won't name it, but they are in the business of uh, assisting, say, international students. So they want to plug into post-secondary institutions. They are looking to offer a variety of different um, elements of support throughout the journey of, you know, one, integrating into the country, and then two, finding employment or succeeding veteran school. And we love the founder. She's great. She's uh, very uh, persistent, gets results, um, or has at least in the past, we're just a little bit, we're a little bit hesitant or cautious about the, the long sales cycle of an educational institution. It takes quite a long time to get certain third party materials approved. And so what we told her was, let's wait for a little bit. We'd like to see you actually get into these conversations and close on a couple of institutions. They could be small ones, big ones, um, as long as there's some evidence of variety there. And if you can do that within a reasonable amount of time and other schools are willing to adopt as well if there's certain amount of network effects that could take place there, then let us craft, you know, the, the, the view of what this would look like, you know, with varying percentages of, of market penetration. And if that spells out something good and we can get the assurance that you're going to continue executing and you'll find other people to join uh, your team that are mission driven that can also do that, then you know, I would love to place an investment, right? Uh, there's a lot of things going right about it. It's just, there's one or two things that we're just not sure about that um, we'd like to see some evidence of before continuing. Mm -hmm. 
And after the investment, post-investment period, uh, what do you recommend founders to communicate with the funds and what do you expect from them? And how regularly do you have uh, calls with the entrepreneurs? Mm -hmm. So with the ones that we say are, are putting on pause, for example, or anyone, right? Like they could be a portfolio company. They could be ones that we're just in touch with. Um, that we've passed at some point in time, but we try to always wedge into some of the last conversations with them, you know, when we're initially considering them is add us to your email update list. It could be monthly, it could be quarterly, just communicate updates on the products. If that's still in development or say you've obviously say released an MVP and you're still working on some of the additional features or um, new integrations over time, uh, Keep us up to date on that. We'd love to see the progress there. You know, the the progress on adding any new people to the team, what kind of value they're bringing, what your your traction is like. Um, are you reducing your spend to get more customers? Do you have a big wait list? Like there's a lot of different things that you can show that provide evidence in that, hey, your company's maybe taking off and you are, are primed to essentially execute on this now. So we'd like to see that monthly or, or quarterly. Again, you know, founders are busy. They don't always have time to tap out a, a full update email every month. So we understand that. But as long as, uh, you know, they can reveal important parts of the company that would allow us to maybe have a second view of them or get more conviction in them. So there's an example right now. There's a company that I'm dealing with that we're still a little bit on the fence of, uh, about that they changed their entire business model from uh, selling in a B2C way to now targeting businesses. And that's given us some fresh perspective on the logistics of the, the product that they're selling, because we think that selling to businesses makes a lot more sense. These businesses in this case would end up handling the hardware that is being sold to them versus, you know, them being in the customer's hands and having the, the logistical issues of, you know, delivering and receiving them again. Um, from customers because they're on a subscription. So you'd have to return them over time or um, yeah. So that, that gives us a little bit more of a fresh perspective on this company and right. That's a big decision that you had to make that took time, obviously to get to that point where you're thinking, Hey, this might work better for the company. You actually have to see it execute first. And then when you share that, it gives us a little bit of a, Hey, maybe there's something else here, or maybe this would be a little bit more preferable. Um, to uh in, in terms of uh, the company being able to scale i mean uh, from questions from funds and startups i'm going to ask you another uh, topic about the canadian vc market how would you describe the current state of the canadian vc market and startup ecosystem absolutely so i run a linkedin community called canada venture which has given me a lot of access to people at large institutions. So some of the biggest funds in Canada, as well as emerging funds, uh, different people working at accelerators or incubator spaces. So we have, it's a smaller country, of course, we don't have the, the population that the US has, but I think that there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of support throughout the growth journey of a company at the early stage. Um, there's, you know, the emergence of uh, a lot more, say, first-time funds that are happening. Um, again, like I mentioned from the example of, of uh, Storytime Capital, for example, 
operators, people that are familiar with a certain vertical running a fund and being able to really capture those pre-seed and seed deals. I think those are coming about in Canada. And the, which I think is timely because right now we're in a bit of a trough in the market for VC. The um, deployment of, of capital is not nearly as high. Um, valuations have been depressed, you know, see at this growth stages. So um, to see new funds still come about in a more tough environment and be ones that are willing to take more, more risks, more bets on companies just starting out here is is a, a great step forward. Because I think the problem that a lot of people have seen with the Canadian market is that we're a little bit more risk adverse. We're a little bit more conservative. We'd like to see more evidence earlier. Um, so companies, of course, that are just starting out that don't necessarily have financials yet, they have the choice of maybe going to a few select accelerators or receiving grant funding. But the element of support from a pre-seed or seed perspective has not say been there as in in the volume or as readily as as in the us so to see new funds come about in that way is great because it bridges that gap there's a lot of funds that are investing in say the later say seed type rounds where here's a company with two years of historical financials they're in a solid position um, they're raising a seed round, um, more so like seed in definition to, again, it, it, it starts to blend like seed and series A together from what I've seen, right? Like companies are a lot further along here that are raising seed rounds versus in the States. You could have an idea on paper and, you know, have a bit of a blueprint for what you're going to do. And you could receive a, a decent amount of seed funding in the States in certain cases. Um, whereas here that's, that's very hard to do. So I like to see people make more uh, uh, obviously educated bets or to get into those higher risk environments. So I think that's coming about in Canada. It'll take time. There's a few funds doing that. I would say that the volume still needs to increase, uh, but it's there. Um, but yeah, and then, you know, once, once we get to say the the seed or series A or any of the ensuing growth stages as well, uh, plenty of support, um, lots of big say institutional VCs. Um, yeah, we, there tends to be a blend, of course, of companies that enter into a Series A. They'll have a couple of Canadian investors on the cap table, along with, say, a U.S. one as well, uh, depending on the performance and the, the I guess, the aptitude um, or the match between, you know, fund and, and uh, startup. And and so, yeah, it's, it's uh, it's yeah, I guess the, the time right now is a little bit different, um, but there's a lot of positives uh, in the country. And just being able to meet some of the talent here is uh, is excellent you know there's a lot of really good fund managers around how is the government interventions or uh, support in uh, startup ecosystem yeah i'm i'm not 100 familiar with the exactness of that but i know that there's a lot of uh, potential for grants that come anywhere between certain municipalities i know for example there's a startup that we are are looking at that would receive certain grant or support funding um, if they're installing their solution within, you know, a, a given municipality that can extend provincially. Um, uh, I'm sorry, just the funding in general can extend provincially or federally as well in the form of a, a variety of different grants. These could be essentially entrepreneurial grants, ones that are focused on impact and sustainability. So there is the availability of that there. And, there's a bigger encouragement here that I see than say in the US in terms of if you are an early stage founder, see if you can apply for certain grants. Um, they can range from 100K up to 500K. 
they're pretty flexible from what I've seen. I can't comment out on it on it too much because I'm not terribly familiar with it, but I know this is the path that um, a few of the startups that I've met with have, have gone. Casey, what does a typical day look like for you? Yeah, typical day. Uh, that's just it. I mean, there are every every day is a little bit different, right? It, it's the I could be in days where I'm in nothing but meetings. These could be meetings with founders on you know a first time basis to follow up with them. Uh, this could be uh, meetings with investors, one to you know establish a relationship between funds to share deals to get maybe some validation on what you're thinking about the market or a particular startup. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, the other meetings could be with experts too. Again, just trying to understand the space a little bit better, get validation on what sort of diligence we're working on for a particular startup too. And then, you know, we have my like independent work. That's a lot of the times just working on the diligence, kind of preparing investment memos or, you know, um, any sort of presentation material for our partners meetings, investment committees. So every day is a little bit different. Uh, a typical day would be just working longer hours to make sure that I can take off a lot of boxes, you know, stay on top of my emails, um, just make sure that I'm sort of being timely about uh, a lot of my activities. So is there a book or uh, books or resources you can recommend to entrepreneurs? Yeah, uh, Venture Deals by Brad Feld. It's one of the first ones that anyone picks up in, in BC to learn about the space or to understand how deals are done. I think that's one that um, people would definitely say is essential. Uh, the Business of Venture Capital too, that was the first book introduced by, uh, to me by um, the first general partners that I had worked for back when I was uh, interning a couple of couple of years ago in BC. That one um, was a really good way of breaking down some of the key categories of what VCs do, just getting up to date on on uh, essentially what your your job uh, would look like. Could be as an analyst or associate, it could be as a, a partner of the fund. It's a very good book. And then the one podcast that I've um, continuously tuned into is the All In Podcast. I mean, it's run by a bunch of other um, very prominent early stage investors. Great to listen to. I mean, it's a blend of talking about, you know, current market trends, anything going on, uh, even geopolitically, and then um, certain bits and pieces about BC as well. Uh, very informative. It's just good to put on in the background and, and hopefully pick up on some of the learnings, you know, as you're working. Uh, thank you very much for your time today, Casey. I mean, it has been a pleasure learning about the VC landscape in Canada and also your perspective and also about the startups and your process. Uh, before we wrap up, can, where can listeners find you more about your uh, uh, links and also communication uh, probably? Absolutely. I'm most prominently on LinkedIn. I mean, I post regularly there. I have my uh, Community Canada Venture that I post through as well. Uh, so I try to be as active in trying to either post or connect with people there. So if people want to go grab me on LinkedIn, please add me. I'm always willing to speak to new people. Those could be you know, startup founders, investors, just anyone interested in the space. 
And then, uh, you know, through the companies I work for too. So LOI Ventures is the venture fund I'm with. Uh, I'm with a company called Deco. I work for them on the side, uh, helping with partnerships. We do, again, the, the end-to-end uh, pitch deck design. Uh, that's been a great way of meeting founders and, and diving a little bit more into their stories as well. So that's something that, you know, is applicable to you if you're, you know, either a first-time founder and you're needing something done right the first time on the, the visual side, you know, you can come to us. Or if you're just, again, looking for uh, an access to another network, you know, we're, we're right there for that as well. Um, but yeah, LinkedIn, um, that's the best place to find me. I'm pretty active there. So thanks again uh, being with me today. Uh, it has yeah. been a great conversation. Absolutely. I agree. Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me on.